The papacy, the supreme authority at the head of the Catholic Church, is the oldest established institution in the world. It is the only institution to flourish during the Middle Ages, a leading actor in the Renaissance and a protagonist in the battles of the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, the French Revolution, the Industrial Era, and the rise and fall of Communism. For centuries, making full use of their famous infallibility, popes brought their centralized power to bear on the social outcomes of unfolding historical events. The historian Thomas Babington Macaulay, in his study of the history of Protestantism, asserted that the popes knew how to place the church in the center of events, just as they knew how to mitigate its role. He stressed the pontiff's ability to co-opt new social movements that kept arising over the course of centuries, or to adapt the church to them. The Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte regarded the papacy as, quote, one of the best jobs in the world. Adolf Hitler called it one of the most dangerous and most delicate in international politics. Napoleon likened the power of a single pope to that of an army of 200,000 men. Really, throughout history, the papacy has always displayed two faces, that of the worldwide leadership of the Catholic Church and that of one of the planet's best political organizations. While the popes were blessing their faithful on the one hand, on the other, they were receiving foreign ambassadors and heads of states and dispatching legates and nuncios on special missions. This power has led many to see the popes more as the priests of princes than as the vicars of Christ. From the 8th century on, the Supreme Pontiffs sought primacy and universal jurisdiction for their pronouncements until, in 1931, with the creation of Vatican Radio, they gained uninterrupted contact with the world, which made this desire a reality. During the Reformation, Martin Luther attacked the papacy as an unnecessary human evil. The Catholic historian Lord Acton criticized the papacy's excessive centralization and, after a trip to Rome, declared that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The history of the Holy Alliance in 1930 renamed the entity. The Vatican spy service cannot be told without telling the history of the popes, nor can the history of the popes be told without telling the history of the Catholic Church. It is clear that without Catholicism there would be no pope, and, as Paul VI wrote in his encyclical ecclesiastical suam, take away the sovereign pontiff and the Catholic Church would no longer be Catholic. Without the actual power that the popes have possessed, neither the Holy Alliance nor the counter-espionage unit, Sodalitum Pianum, would exist. Both have formed part of the machinery that they have also helped to create. The Holy Alliance, since its foundation in 1566 by order of Pope Pius V, and the SP, since its foundation in 1913 by order of Pius X. Carlo Castiglione, history and author of one of the best encyclopedias on the papacy, wrote, quote, Without any doubt, the triple crown worn by the popes symbolizes the power they exercise in heaven, on earth, and in the underworld, end quote. That statement is easy to explain. In heaven, the pope has God. On earth, the pope has himself. In the underworld, the pope has the holy alliance.
ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name's Jay, and I am joined by the Holy Alliance, Nick and Rory. There's very little holy to this. I mean, technically, we, we are both riddled with holes. That's what I was just about to say. We are very holy. It's just not the kind that you want here. And Yeah, and actually, I've had many extra holes added to me over mm. the years. That I mean, they've closed since, but I'm sure with enough work in this pen, I can get them open again. Yeah, no, I would agree. On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. place we're back we're here two out of three of us are queer i'm the outlier <laughs> uh so uh we are here for the final episode of the summer of secrets or is it i guess not yeah. the, the last book of the summer of secrets that's right so for listeners at home so we're trying something new this is part one of, of two. Part, part one of part four Oh god, this is confusing. It's like <laughs> Oh god, now I hate this. Like we're <laughs> we're like one of those, you know, bad like uh uh young adult book series book series trilogies that gets made into movies but they make like four movies for some reason. So it's it's Harry Potter, Deathly Hallows, part 1 and 2. Or like Kingdom Hearts where they kept making Kingdom Hearts 3.875 or fa- Final Fantasy 10 2. Yeah. I think that's actually what I was thinking of, maybe. No, no, they no, did, no Kingdom, uh, Hearts Kingdom Hearts does, does that, too. They did 2.5. <sighs> oh yeah, no, it, 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 that's uh, essentially exactly what we're doing here, but with good reason. Yeah, because... Because this... we wanted to. Yeah. Oh, I was about to say, what is the good reason? I, I don't remember. <laughs> As you know, I got the mad cow. I feel like I have mad cow disease after reading this book and like not necessarily because of the content, but because it's just like, okay, motherfucker. No, you can't spend eight pages telling me a story only to be like, and it was set 10 years in the future from where I'm actually beginning my discussion of this portion of papy of papacy history. It's like, no, you cannot jump around in the timeline like this. Not when this book was originally written in Italian and then translated by some clown named dick cluster <laughs> i can't believe that an editor let that name be printed on a book i mean what are they gonna do it's like change dick, your name dick we need to talk about what we can't put your name on the book but i put in all the work yes but i mean come on you're okay odds the- are odds are his name's richard not yeah. dick so just go by richard just go by richard you know, that's a good point he has to he has to just think this is funny or he didn't think about it, and he just thinks everybody who thinks about it's immature. Because uh, the image and... I got in my head immediately was like a flower bouquet of dick. Wow, you're way nicer than me. Or you just imagine like just a field of cock? Just a, like a field of explosive cock. Cause explosive? Cluster made me think of like cluster bombs. A cl- just a cluster munitions, but it just, yeah. just shoots dildos just, in every direction? Just giant exploding dicks. 
The point is the name's distracting. Uh, I'm here to talk about the church. I'm ready for that. I'm going to do it in a sane adult way. You don't have to. Um, So, yeah, uh, what we're talking about today is a book called The Entity, originally by Eric Frattini. Um, it is subtitled Five Histories of Secret Vatican Espionage because uh, guess what, dear listeners? Um, the Vatican has an espionage service. They yes. have an intelligence agency. Yes. They don't like to admit it exists. Correct. <laughs> also, for those who are going to try to Google the book title, it's Five Centuries of Vet- Secret Vatican Espionage. But that's okay. You could also just look up the entity and eventually it'll come up. Yeah. And remember, Probably. if you can't remember the name, Eric Frattini is the author. It was translated by Dick Cluster. Which actually, um, this is not the only book of Frattini's that Dick Cluster has translated. I wonder if he's even a real. God, that'd be funny. <laughs> like, here's the thing. Cause it's one thing for Dick Cluster to be the guy's name, and he decided to not go by, like, Richard Cluster. Um, but it's much funnier if some editor's like, we need a fake name put on this. Dick Cluster. I mean, when was this book printed? Uh, There's numbers in here somewhere. 2004. Okay, so the name Dick had already fallen out of style, so never mind. I was going to try and make an excuse Uh, for him, but... To be clear, the English translation copyright is from 2008, and that is held by, by Dick Cluster. That doesn't change my statement. No, but I just wanted to point it out. Yeah, I appreciate it. What did you guys think of it? Oh shit. Yeah, the book. Um I I liked it. Um I mean I god, it's hard to say. Like I saying I liked it sounds disingenuous because I didn't enjoy myself. Do you reading like the book. reading history textbooks? Yeah, that's the thing. It was a history book. I enjoy some of the, the, the facts that are now now get to live in my noggin. Like there are some interest a re- some really interesting periods of history discussed here. There's some really troubling uh, behavior on the part of the church that I now know. Um, you know, okay, I mean, I guess, I guess it's the difference of I always knew the church historically had been up to shady stuff. But there's it's different now that you have, like, dates and yeah. names associated yeah. with it, knowing exactly what they were up to. Uh, it's an incredibly thorough book. It's incredibly in-depth. It covers fi- oh, 500 years of history. Um so as you can imagine, it is a bit of a slog to get through. But that said, it, it was interesting. I think uh, probably it would have been easier to read probably uh, like Jay alluded to earlier if there was a little bit better translation work. Yeah. Uh, just because some sections, I I really struggled to figure out what was going on. And that, granted, could just be that the author wrote it. Again, he, he, he's from Spain. He, he wrote it with a Spanish audience in mind. There's likely certain historical uh, events which are much more commonly taught in Spanish schools versus what the average American rube like me is learning in elementary school. Like, the War of Spanish Succession kind of glossed over some important details that would have made that more understandable for me. Yeah. Same thing with all the shit that was going on uh, with Netherlands and their their whole succession bullshit, and it's... This period of European history is inherently complicated because all of these royal families were marrying each other, so everybody had a claim to every single throne, like, in one way or another. Well, and also, because we didn't get any kind of back, back, real backstory 
or at least not sufficient on what you know what was happening in the Netherlands and how that influenced the political sphere that the Pope was operating under. Um, it kind of felt like the Netherlands, whenever they showed up, it was like, and here comes the Netherlands with a steel chair. I just, I, <laughs> there was no, I had no idea why they were doing what they were doing. I knew it was violent. RKO out of nowhere. <laughs> what is this? What is this? William of Orange has stormed the octagon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, I enjoyed my, I enjoy that I read the book. I can't say I enjoyed the book. That is completely fair. That is completely fair. Uh, what about you, baby? I mean, I am glad that we read a book about the entity, but like a lot of books, I guess my uh, my review in this way, uh, it was boring. I know. Yeah, it it was boring, and that's fine. It's a history book, and it felt like it every step of the way. And uh, I just like I like. Like, obviously, I like history, right? I have a whole shelf of books on pirate history, but they're not. They're mo- most of the books that I've read aren't, or that I own, aren't written like a history book so much as they are written like, uh, like a journalist wrote a story about the history of pirates. Yeah. You know? So that's kind of what I'm used to reading, where this uh, was reminiscent of my high school textbooks. Yeah, it was very dry. Yeah, is. which is unfortunate because, I mean, some of the things that get discussed is like, man, if you you just, you know, gave this some pop and some glitter, this would be yeah. amazing, this would be incredible to read about. Like, I, God, I can't remember his name. I'm going to have to look it up. The uh, the Vatican's James Bond during World War II, the guy who kept popping up everywhere, killing everyone and doing everything. <laughs> you know who I'm referring to? The Italian, the handsome Italian guy? Yes, I do. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Every time he showed up, I would just, my nose right this motherfucker again. <laughs> But yeah, that would be a fascinating story. But instead, it's just like, and then the handsome priest appeared again. The this book would have uh, probably sold a bil- billions of copies. Not really, but it would have sold a lot more copies if they if he had had an editor that just added some fluff. Yeah. Yeah. Granted, I'm not sure how much fluff I could take with how long the book already no, is. No, they would have had to cut some of the less important details. Yeah, just history. Yeah. Maybe this book should have been a series of books. Hey, like, now we're talking. Like in five parts, and each century was a shorter book. It could have been like an encyclopedia, except fun. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, like I personally, it, as much as she herself was also a monster, as most monarchs are intrinsically, it was very funny watching Elizabeth I just humiliate most of the rest of Western Europe every time they tried to challenge her claim of it's like, okay, here's an idea. What if I just utterly destroy the Spanish Armada so thoroughly that they go home with their tail between their legs? What if I just do that? Uh, uh, Technically, God did that. Yeah, so I guess he made his wishes known. Yeah, there we go. God said drown. (laughs) Hey, I thought you promised not to do that again, God. That was the whole world, not you being a dick, Philip II. Oh. Touche. Lightning. Are we ready to get into the book? I am. Let's do it. All right, let's go. Let's start at the start. (laughs) Oh, boy. Part one. Eric Frattini tells us that no one can really be sure who started the Holy Alliance, a.k.a. the Entity, a.k.a. the Vatican's Espionage Service. Likely, the Church has always had spies. 
What, you think St. Peter had no ears and thus no use for whispers? But these things have a habit of becoming official. The alliance was brought to life, truly and officially, by Pope Pius V. Long before he was supreme pontiff, Pius, born Antonio Gisleri, was a priest serving his holiness, Pope Julian III, as the chief inquisitor. Under his leadership, beginning in 1551, the infamous torture circus sought out heretics, suspected heretics, those who supported heretics, will workers, blasphemers, those who opposed the Inquisition, and those who broke the Holy Office's seal or emblems, a.k.a. open letters they weren't supposed to open. Said torture circus and its sadistic clowns spent their time waterboarding progressives in the church, forcing heretics to sit the Judas cradle, and using rope torture to break the arms of witches. But where did they find these people? The same way that Stalin found capitalists and the same way Walt Disney found those loyal to Warner Brothers spies. (laughs) You're going to go into the mouse hole until you reform. (laughs) The mouse hole. All throughout Rome, Gisleri planted seeds and those seeds grew into eyes. Brothels, noble houses, and everywhere in between. Gisleri's cronies watched and waited and whispered. Those whispers were either reported directly to Gisleri from the spy's own mouths or were transcribed in red reports, sealed Vatican correspondence. Remember that thing about Gisleri getting to torture you to death if you opened a holy seal and read things not meant for your eyes? That's a dink. <laughs> what proof did these red reports contain? Oh, none. Just... Names and crimes and excuses. In 1555, after four years of drowning his sorrows in blood and screams and papal gold, Gisleri found himself serving a new pope, Paul IV. Paul, a man of poor temperament, was deeply protective of his newfound political position and feared Gisleri, and he was no fool to do so. After all, the citizens of Rome called the chief inquisitor the Shadow Pope, Despite his misgivings, political nonsense compelled Paul IV to ascend Gisleri to the rank of cardinal, making him eligible for the throne of St. Peter, should Paul IV receive that final promotion that awaits all holy men. Death? Yes. I thought that was pretty clear. Just making sure. (laughs) No, 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 no. What's above Pope is uh, is banker. Oh. Oh. To be a banker. That explains a lot. Yeah. It really does, actually. Gisleri was not a holy man, nor were those who served him. With even less restraint than under Julian III, Gisleri's black monks stalked the streets of Rome, abducting those they chose to victimize, and carried them off to the Vatican's secret compounds. Frattini uh, gives us a rather vivid description of that, which I will read now. The victim was taken to the ground floor, just off an inner courtyard near the main entrance. There began his initiation in a circular room where ten skeletons hung from the walls to announce that, in this abode, the guests were sometimes nailed there alive to calmly await their deaths. After such a holy warning, the victims came upon two more human skeletons in an adjoining gallery, not on their feet as if receiving visitors, but spread out like a mosaic or carpet. 
On the right side of the same gallery, a grease-stained oven could clearly be distinguished. It was the secret replacement for the bonfires in public plazas, which had fallen into disuse in this corrupt century. Few cells, properly speaking, could be found here on the first floor, but on the second floor, to the right, was the chamber of the Holy Tribunal, flanked by two doors. Above one was a sign proclaiming Stanza del Primo Padre Compagno, and above the other, Stanza del Secondo Padre Compagno. Thus were named the two inquisitors in charge of the double mission of helping the Suprema to uncover criminals and turn them definitively into convicts. And then, in 1559, Paul IV died. Rather suddenly, in fact. And unfortunately for Gisleri, the citizens of Rome reacted far faster than he did. Sedition swelled in the streets. Romans tore down statues of the late Pope. Now it was the black monks fleeing down back alleys, under cover of darkness, vengeful hands close behind them. When they were caught, they answered for their crimes, and their corpses were hurled into Rome's ancient sewers. As mobs stormed the papal palace, Gisleri and his agents fled Rome, saving, in the process, large chunks of their secret archives. Rumor has it that these archives contain the holiest hentai collection in Western history. (laughs) (laughs) Gross. A man who called himself Pope Pius IV rose up in Paul IV's place in December of 1559. Pius IV officially exiled Gisleri and dissolved his black monks, which wasn't hard because, again, the citizens of Rome were hunting them for sport in the streets. They were already in the process of dissolving them in the sewers. Yeah, Yeah. and I don't think anyone was stopping said citizens of Rome at this point. Um... While Pius was jailing all of Paul IV's allies and trying to undo some of the damage left in Gisleri's wake, the bitch himself was often his former bishopric, just being a guy, not in jail, not shunned, just a well-liked priest in this little scrap of Christendom. And when Pius IV finally keeled over in 1565, Gisleri waltzed right back into his old life. Once there, a bunch of cardinals and the king of goddamn Spain all backed him for the position of supreme pontiff, and Gisleri was proclaimed Pope Pius V in 1566. He was now the voice of God on earth, the sovereign of the papal states, and completely infallible in the eyes of church hierarchy. With no one left in the Vatican to stand in his way, Pope Pius V set his sights on the church's greatest enemy at the time. England, and its heretic queen, Elizabeth I. And that's going to bring us to discussion question number one. Okay. So I first learned of the Holy Alliance from a TV show called Evil. Hey, me too. That's a great great show. It's an amazing show. And I was very confused when I found out that it was real. Um, How does the existence of a papal espionage service change your perception of the Catholic Church and of the Pope's position within it? Um, So the existence of it makes me ultimately think of the Church and the Vatican in general. Specifically, I'd say more the Vatican than anything else, but are we not saying the same thing? Yeah. Um, More as a political 
thing than prior because otherwise why would they need this you know other than to gain political power in some form or another so it makes it it, it ultimately changes the entire outlook of everything that the pope does because what is he motivated by? Because it's certainly not the church itself. It's certainly not the text of the church if he's going out and gathering all of this information and ultimately making policy decisions which affect not just him, not just the Vatican, but how Catholics around the world are going to view whatever, whatever this topic is. And if they're doing that not by the will of God, but they're doing it by spying and making decisions based on information and intelligence that's gathered through said spying, they're not relying on the will of God anymore. They're relying on the will of man. And it's kind of like they are using spy service to act like God. Because God is quote unquote omnipre- omnipresent and omnipotent, and uh, well, they're not because they're human, but they're trying to act like it. Because and the entity's fucking scary, man. Yes, they like, are. If if the if it doesn't get hammered home throughout this episode, which I'm sure it will, let me reinforce the fact that the entity is fucking scary. Yeah, like they have killed so many people. Yeah. For a while, it was their main purpose. Yeah, they were more, honestly, calling them an espionage group is honestly kind of polite. Like, for a, there's a time period in which you would, I would say, you mean the Pope's executioners? <sighs> Assassins? Yeah, because that's what it, that's honestly what it feels like more than anything else for probably a vast majority of the, those 500 years. I mean, you can't separate them from the fact that the guy that made them an official body was the chief inquisitor during some of the bloodiest years of the of Vatican history. And and honestly, if if you actually like when we break down like history just in general and you look at the natural progression of the Catholic Church, both from the outside and into like from an outside perspective in, uh, to the inside, it, it almost makes sense that they go this route because the crusades got them got a kind of a bad rap yeah you know so they can't just be going around killing people in the name of god anymore so instead they're gonna go around killing people in the name of god quietly this is the future the left wants well (laughs) not exactly i think you're confused about what the left is i think you're confused about what we want I'm just confused. Hey, you're finally admitting it. <laughs> it's good. But no, I, I think ultimately it changes it ultimately changes the entire outlook of the church to me because the group itself, their existence has no place inside an organization that is a, strictly a church. Yeah. That is a political organization and uh, or a political it, it is a a governmental body, and really, that's being polite. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I uh, very similarly, I, I came to a a similar conclusion uh, just regarding the church's, I guess, uh, more earthly ambitions, uh, and I guess how pervasive that is. I mean, here's the thing: is that 
you know, we've known for a long time, you know, especially in the modern day, that the church gets up to some bad stuff. We have, in more recent memory, we have all of the sex abuse scandals coming out of the church. Uh, but, like, we, lo- we learn about the Inquisition, and we learn about some of the other nefarious things the church got up to. Uh, and then you have evil, because, again, like, like Jay, that was my first exposure to the idea of the entity was in that show. And in that show, they're still presented as these, uh, well, egg, they're good guys, apparently, and they are also kind of the frontline holy warriors in the, in the battle against the satanic cults. And it's just funny, because you get into this book, it's like, these guys did very little battling of Satan. Yeah. You know, like, they, they, they're not holy warriors, they're assassins. Yeah. They're, they're thugs, they are... Uh, they're operatives and you know, sometimes you, it's easy. Like I was saying earlier, the handsome Italian guy who shows up all over world war two, it's easy to romanticize them for that fact. Yeah. But then you have to, uh, that kind of runs up against, then you have to start thinking, well, these are real people who got murdered, you know? Yeah. And then once you start putting things into that perspective, I don't know, like I was just thinking about when you, Jay was going over the list of things that, uh, would, you know, get the inquisition to come after you is like and i don't think any of us would have survived rome in that period no hell no no we would have ended up totally murdered by black monks hell yeah uh yeah so i don't know it, it definitely i think made the crimes of the church more real to me um in a sense it also uh, i guess how it affects my understanding of the pope and the church I guess it's easy with religious institutions to try to see them at least as viewing themselves as above worldly affairs and hence somewhat separate from it. Uh, but the truth is they are, they by nature of having to exist in this, th- in this 3d environment we're in, they have to be part of this world. They have to be ingrained yep. in it. They have to ha- deal with the political ramifications. And because the church wields an extraordinary amount of power, people don't want to lose that power. So when challenges come up against it, they're going to do everything they can to to thwart that and it's it's just funny to see how quickly i guess the the mandates of their faith go out the window in the yeah. face of pragmatism yeah because at no point it does the whole did the holy alliance seem like a, a holy organization it was filled with people who by the text of by my understanding of the christian faith we're the worst of sinners yeah. like you know it's uh i mean murder is uh pretty pretty bad yeah. Uh, yeah, in the in the eyes of God, just in like not even looking at any of the other crimes, just looking at the killing, they're supposed to be pretty against murder. Yeah, well, and also God, how many how many times did we come across? And this was another Holy Alliance agent who was also a priest, and most of them were just the killy priests. Yeah. Also, a lot of them were breaking their priestly vows because part of the way they were getting information was banging foreign yep. dignitaries. Yep. Well, it, it, can, I mean, can, sex is a great way to get information. Can you just oh, imagine, absolutely. though, like finding out like, ah, yes, uh, Father Paul, he's he's he he baptized me as a child. I've, I've seen him speaking every Sunday. And then one day I was driving through the city and I looked down the alley and saw him beating a man to death with a baseball bat. Ah, uh, hello, Father. <laughs> and you, you report that to the bishop and the bishop is like, I'll take care of this immediately. And then he calls pa- Father Paul into his office. He's like, you're getting damn sloppy. And then that guy dies. Yep. Not yeah. Father Paul. Whoever reported it. Correct. Yep. Yeah, Father Paul is way uh, too uh, useful. I will also say this. This book uh, drove home, I guess, a deeper appreciation for the fact that the Vatican is 
apparently pathologically incapable of owning up to when any of their members make mistakes because you know the, the more modern phenomenon that gets reported around you know the sexual harassment stuff where well we don't banish the priests we just close ranks to protect them um that's on that that is not a new phenomenon that nope. is throughout history and in fact used to be far more aggressive i mean they still haven't admitted to the existence of the entity right no no they 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 have not in any way publicly acknowledge that the entity exists. Yeah. So they're still doing it. I I didn't experiment. I went and I was doing like basic internet research into the um into the assassination of Henry the Fourth, who we're gonna be talking about in this summary. He's he's one of the plots we're that I'm gonna be focusing on in this. Um, on the surface level, like things you could get through just simple Google searches, there's no mention of the fact that the Vatican was believed to be involved. Of course not. Yeah. It's just, I... It, it's it, wild, though, thinking yeah. about that. Yeah. It's, it's just... They've, they've found a way to essentially erase their actions from even the internet in some ways or bury them so deep, you know? Yeah, and that's kind of that's kind of how this book changed like my opinion of the church cuz like I it like not my opinion, like my view of the yeah. church is it 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 drove home to me what a weird place that the that the Vatican occupies on the geopolitical stage because Vatican City is this tiny little 2-mile territory in the middle of Rome now and like but but they wield such massive power, but at the same time, they're not really a country. They're a faith that's also a cultural identity. And so it's like they have an espionage service. They won't admit it, it exists, but it's not, it, it's not something that we can force out of them because it's the fucking church and you can't. It's just it's it, this very weird game that the rest of Western politics mm. has to play around the Vatican and also just the, the the weird peaks and valleys that their power has gone through throughout the centuries where sometimes the Pope was nobody and being supreme pontiff meant nothing and other times it's like this man is bending empires to his whim with a single letter. Well, yeah. What I found interesting is how often the determination of how powerful a Pope was going to be seemed to be linked intrinsically to how much were they going willing to a use and allow the holy alliance yeah, yeah like yeah. those who are willing to to use it to its fullest extent they will wield an enormous power those who tried to clamp down on it had a, a, a by comparison a much reduced impact on the world and that is a yes you're not using a powerful uh tool in the shadows but also it seems that certain levers of power were closed to a pope the moment they started uh, asking too many questions about why we have this giant sect of assassins and murderers. If you have to ask why, you don't get to use it. It's, uh, some of those popes that denounced the Holy Alliance had um, strangely short reigns. I was noticing a bit of a pattern there. Yeah, but granted, I, I do have to also point out throughout this book, they kept <laughs> electing. Like every time it came around to a new conclave to elect a new pope, 
All right. Well, the last pope died at the age of 87. Wow. Long life. We want to make sure the next pope rules for longer. Let's elect the 77-year-old. And then he <laughs> dies two years later. Hmm, let's have another conclave. You know what? Let's try 82 this time. They just kept parading in another animated corpse after another to <laughs> sit was, on the throne. There was one pope they elected at the age of 26. Oh, yeah. how long did he last again? He was there for a while. Yeah, I remember. I remember because there was one long period where I, I remember seeing Magus like, hmm, that's strange. None of these guys have died recently. <laughs> yeah, that was the guy. They, I think that was Alessandro Medici that they elected when he was only 26. Yeah, that would track. Is that the youngest pope they've ever got elected? I, I think if he's not the youngest, he's in top three. Like there were, they elected a few very young ones, but that was, that was, it, way back in the long ago times yeah and then jude law came along and he got elected pope and uh you're thinking of an hbo series dio flactus of tusculum uh age 20 in october 1032 1032 so good 500 years before this book is set yep neat wow well i mean granted that's like in 1032 that could have still been a two-year reign they died of old age at the age of twenty-two. That poor, yeah. that poor pope that they elected, who then died seventeen days later of a cold. Yeah, Pope Benedict the Ninth. I X. That's nine, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he died at forty-three. Okay, so yeah, he got a good twenty-three years in. Yeah, assuming yeah. that he was pope the whole time, which I would say he probably was. I mean, it'd be yeah, weird it's... if it was like, and here's the summer he took away where he left his dog in charge of the church. Uh, there's a South Park episode where the premise is that it's like what St. Oh, Peter actually, he actually did resign. Oh, he did resign. Twice. <laughs> oh, wait. No, I remember this guy. I've heard about this guy before. Yeah, he they kept being like, you need to be Pope again. And he was like, please, I just want to be in the country with my carrot garden. And they're like, you need to be Pope again for the good of all of Christendom. And then he was excommunicated in 1049. Yeah, um, for a while there, popes had a habit of excommunicating previous popes if they were still alive. It was like, uh, yeah, it was, it was just a thing. There was this one, there was this one time where the conclave split, split into different factions and each faction elected a different Pope and there were three Popes and all three kept excommunicating the other two. (laughs) It just sounds so petty. It is petty because it's nothing but ridiculously wealthy old men being like, I want the fanciest hat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 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 that's good. It's good to laugh at uh, considering all of the murder that's coming soon. Yeah. I mean, the murder makes more sense when you remember that it's guys fighting over a hat. (laughs) Ah, We ready to move on to the battle for Catholic England? I am. Benedict IX is the first pope to have been uh, rumored to be primarily homosexual. Oh, neat. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, we can move on. Part two. As I said before, the initial purpose of the Holy Alliance under its true founder, Pius V, was to gather information on and carry out plots against Protestant England. By the time Pius V was crowned, Elizabeth I had ruled for roughly eight years. During that time, the Vatican, France, Spain, and the Netherlands had all plotted against her to various degrees. There was talk of invasion. 
of coercive marriage pacts, of usurping. And there was a distinct possibility of unseating Elizabeth. After all, most royal families in Europe, particularly Western Europe, had been intermarrying for generations. More than one foreign royal had a claim to Elizabeth's seat and titles. Chief amongst them was the Queen's cousin, Mary Stuart, the Queen of Scotland. And it was Mary to whom the Vatican sent its agents. Mary Stuart was literally born the Queen of Scotland. Her predecessor, her father, died before her birth, and she came into this world as a sovereign head of state. That sucks. Yep. Yep, she didn't even get one day to be a baby. Nope. Nope. Congratulations, you were born. Have a kingdom. Just just (laughs) pop on out and the doctor looks at you. Great, great. What are you going to do about the fucking taxes? (laughs) I feel I feel so bad for Mary Stewart. This entire this entire chapter was like, will you people leave her the fuck alone? What's that? You want to play with your rattle? Too fucking bad. There's a famine. (laughs) (laughs) What do you want us to do? We need more food. She just grabs their nose and goos. <laughs> At once, your grace. <laughs> they set all of the highlands on fire. I'm pretty sure this is what she said. It sounds like what, it's what I would do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I was in that situation, I agree. Just burn it all down. A <laughs> oh, baby is our queen. Let's just only fire will cleanse our sins. <laughs> Uh, Now, the state of Scotland was Presbyterian, not Catholic, but the Pope was willing to work with what he had. Soon, Mary Stuart's court was littered with spies from the church, including the priest Daniel Rizzio, who was her personal attendant, private secretary, and was probably sleeping with her. I'm gonna, I don't even think you need the probably there. I am pretty sure he was sleeping with her. Yeah. I would agree. She wasn't exactly hiding it. No, 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 she was not. (laughs) What with the whole making her husband sleep in a room covered while she had Rizzio in her bedchamber for like eight hours every night. Well, let's also address the fact that her her husband was legendarily stupid. Like, he, he was, no, his primary thing he was known for was being an idiot, and he figured it out. It could not have been well hidden. Yeah, that, you know, that's, that's a fair point. <laughs> oh, my God. I also feel a little bad for Henry Darnley because he is just so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Mary's husband, King Consort Henry Darnley, was a Catholic, but served as a puppet to Scottish nobility and often fed information to Elizabeth I's spy network. His marriage to Mary was far from a happy one, and he worked against her with the eventual aim of declaring himself King of Scotland. Through his spying, Father Rizzio learned that two of Mary's chancellors were Protestants and had been taking bribes from Elizabeth I to promote rebellion against Mary. Oh, no. Additionally, the English ambassador was throwing fuel on the fire, hoping to incite the Scottish populace into dethroning the church-friendly queen on their own. Upon discovering this, Mary sent him packing, reasonable, and the ambassador returned to England. With him, he carried interesting news. Henry Darnley was planning on assassinating Rizzio. Like, is it really assassinating, or was Darnley just fucking drunk one day at the pub, just screaming, I'm gonna get that guy! Maybe a little bit of both. I, I think it's I, I think it's entirely the latter. Yeah. I, I don't... Here, and the problem is, from the picture we get of Darnley in this book, I can't associate him with the word plotting. 
<laughs> because that requires some form of higher thought when he is described as fundamentally a handsome root vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> By this point, many members of the Scottish nobility had grown to fear and resent the influence the church was exerting over Mary. By promising to back her claim in Scotland and support her eventual ascension to the throne of England, the Vatican had vastly increased the likelihood of Mary converting Scotland back to Catholicism. Not keen on this, the nobility involved in the assassination plot promised Darnley the throne in his own right. He, in turn, promised them pardons and new lands. Rizzio's network of spies warned him this was coming. He ignored them, and he died for that mistake. On March 9th, 1566, Rizzio was lured to Mary's chambers by Darnley. As the men sat playing cards, a band of assassins entered, led by a lord named Patrick Ruthven, sword drawn. Mary tried to intervene, but was rebuffed and ignored. Darnley, in true kingly fashion, cowered behind a curtain as the nobleman dragged Rizzio outside and stabbed him to death. Mary swore vengeance. But Mary was also politically trapped into pardoning her shitbird husband. Darnley, once again in true kingly fashion, flip-flopped over to his wife's cause, swearing to uphold and defend her claim. King Bitch Puppet, the Who Cares of Scotland, probably thought that was the end of it for him. But he'd been pardoned by Mary. Not by Pius, and not by the Holy Alliance. Father Lamberto Macchi, former head of the Inquisition and member of the Jesuit order, had been sent to find Rizzio's assassins and avenge the fallen priest. Those assassins included Henry Darnley, regardless of Mary's declarations. Maybe Darnley did sense this. In the coming weeks, he attempted to distance himself from Mary and prepared to flee Scotland. He retreated to his father's castle and attempted to hide there. Mary dragged him out of hiding, despite his fears of the Pope's men. Fears that proved justified. On February 9th, 1567, after a grand ball, Darnley was attempting to return to the home he was staying in. He was unaware that Machi and his men had placed massive gunpowder charges at the base of the mansion's key supports. At 2 a.m., however, they made him and half of Scotland very aware. I don't think he was aware of much. I think uh. he probably got aware, what's that? And then just darkness. And it's just over. <laughs> Darnley's corpse was found several yards away from the crater. With a knotted cord wound tight around his neck, he had been strangled to death. Soon after, a fellow conspirator named Lord Fondenside was hunted down and hanged outside his safe house. The next conspirator managed to live another three years, a man named Moray, one of the chancellors promoting rebellion against Mary. He was stabbed to death in the neck on January the 11th, 1570. The Holy Alliance had a long arm and a longer memory. Ooh. I like that line. Thank you. <laughs> Meanwhile, Pius V dug a different sort of grave when he formally excommunicated Elizabeth I. This move was done under the protest of the Spanish crown, a.k.a. the empire that was currently using the threat of their military might to prevent war between England and Scotland in the first fucking place. English Catholics were now forced to choose between queen and church. Spain, France, and the other Catholic monarchies were forced to choose between church and policy when it came to interactions with England. 
And in June of 1567, Mary's son, and possibly Rizzio's, was born. James IV of Scotland, also James I of England, was instantly the greatest threat to Mary's power. But prior even to this birth, Mary was losing ground. In May of 67, she had wed and attempted to crown her trusted advisor, Bothwell, and the response from the Presbyterian nobility was rebellion. Bothwell fled Scotland in terror, and Mary Stuart was taken prisoner. At this time, the only allies she could turn to were the King of Spain, Philip II, and the Pope, still Pius V. Mary swore full devotion to the church, and Pius appointed a priest called Ridolfi to oversee the new plot against Elizabeth I. Once again, the plan was rebellion. The church would sow seeds of dissent, raise those seeds into angry little shrubs, and use the branches as kindling to burn the Tudor dynasty to ash. Mary Stuart would be freed, crowned Queen of England, and restore one of the greatest powers in Europe to the church's flock. Rodolphe recruited a church ally, the Duke of Norfolk, and Norfolk agreed, in writing, to wed Mary Stuart and use his position as Prince Consort to shepherd England's reconversion once Mary was crowned. Norfolk began pouring large sums of money into the purses of Mary's allies. A military plot was hatched involving the landing of 10,000 men from the Netherlands on England's shores in warships. To lead this fleet, Rodolphe recruited an English pirate, John Hawkins, to the cause. What Rodolphe did not know was that Hawkins was already a spy. Pirate he may have been, but Johnny Boy was loyal to England. Elizabeth's spies intercepted and decoded letters and discovered the mysterious donations that the Duke of Norfolk was sending out. Smelling treason cooking, Elizabeth ordered the Duke of Norfolk and the Bishop of Ross, another conspirator, arrested and questioned. Noble blood saved Norfolk from torture, but the bishop had no such shield. Beaten, burned, and relieved of his fingernails, the bishop confessed a laundry list of crimes that Mary Stuart was guilty of. Mary denied these crimes, but the damage was done. Spain backed out of the plot. Mary's support as both Queen of England and Scotland was rapidly dwindling in favor of her tiny son. The Bishop of Ross and the Duke of Norfolk were both executed, and Pope Pius V died of being fucking old. In his place, the Cardinals raised up Gregory XIII. Greg, deciding that this Mary is Queen shit had taken them as far as it was gonna, created the first Holy Alliance Task Force. The task force's sole purpose was to assassinate Elizabeth I and place young Prince James on the throne in her stead. Mary Stuart could go fuck herself, basically. The English army eventually invaded and occupied Scotland. Growing desperate and frustrated, Pope Greg partnered with the then head of the Jesuits, Claudio Aquaviva, to devise a plot involving Catholic Ireland. Throwing support behind James Fitzmaurice, the son of a nobleman, the church began to stoke the fires of rebellion in Catholic Ireland. In addition to sending troops from Spain, the church sent priests to travel from church to church, preaching the virtues of murdering the dog shit out of Elizabeth I. In June of 1579, Fitzmaurice and his initial band of troops landed on Irish shores and made camp. English forces attempted to crush this uprising in its infancy and succeeded in killing Fitzmaurice, but all of Munster was soon in open revolt. The English army retaliated, raining hellfire and colonizer entitlement on the heads of the Irish rebels. In 1580, the stronghold fell, 
Soldiers and Catholic civilians alike were executed, and the Spanish threw every ounce of blame at the Pope, which Elizabeth was happy to believe. A few more furtive attempts were made on Elizabeth's life, none more successful than the previous ones have been. In 1587, Mary Stuart was executed, thoroughly abandoned by the Catholic Church, and James Stuart would become king after Elizabeth passed. The church hoped James would restore Catholicism under his reign, but the young man had become a defender of Protestantism. The church's roads through Catholic England were all closed. Hmm. And that's going to bring us to discussion question number two. Okay. We have here a string of real-life conspiracies. Marriages, seduction, organized war, queen against queen. Comparing these historical facts to the speculation found in other conspiracy literature, what differences do you see? Do other conspiracies we've encountered seem more or less plausible? Um, I, so, I, I mean, one part of the difference is we know these things happened. Um, but really, I guess, when looking at these historical plots and conspiracies compared with modern-day conspiracy theory, to me, the thing that I'm struck with is how simple a lot of modern conspiracies are. Like, it, it, looking at this, this story, I mean, Jay, you did a great job of parsing it down, but this was easily one of the most confusing portions of the book. Yeah. Because it, was, it wasn't just person A has a plot. They or, gather people and they're trying to do the plot and they're thwarted or not. It's person A has a plot. Person B has a plot. Person C has a plot. Sometimes they're going to work together with each other when it furthers their cause. Sometimes they're going to kill each other. And sometimes they're going to do things for rand almost seemingly no reason just to fuck with everyone else. It's a real life Game of Thrones kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. The, the fact and also the thing is. People still knew that these things were going on. Like you know, people knew that the church were were supporting Mary, uh, Mar the, were supporting Mary Queen of Scots, despite the fact that that was you know part of the secret plot. It's it what it drove home to me is that really like it's it's tough to keep these big, uh, world changing maneuvers secret, uh, and that was in an age when you didn't have social media and people texting each other and satellite imagery, um. I think it's actually a lot harder probably in the modern day to get away with the conspiracy that it would have been back then. And even then, look how easily information got out, how quickly every party knew what every other party was up to and plotting against it. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the fact that it was so complicated and convoluted, I guess, gives it that more that bigger air of reality, whereas I feel a modern a lot of modern conspiracy theories they miss the nuance. They miss. They're missing that element because that they they, they kind of come across like cartoon plots. Like, okay, I mean, and this happens a lot with you know, especially UFO stuff. You're looking. All right, well, let's say let's take any one of the various conspiracy theories. Uh, breakaway civilization. The the wealthy and elites have access to UFO technology and they're hoarding it because they are basically setting themselves up as a permanent upper class that's going to have a technological advantage over everyone. All right, that that's the that is the 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 breadth of the conspiracy. But let's let's break that down. All the wealthy people, okay, so they're all on the same side. They all agree with each other about that. Not only we're doing this, but how to do it. They're all that none of them are are leaking any, anything to any girlfriends or aides or friends that they're bragging to. It it, it you know it, it becomes almost cartoonish in the competence that's projected on them. Yeah. Whereas when you look at actual conspiracies in history, like this plot against Elizabeth the first, you get a lot of darnleys. I think one of the biggest because there are modern day conspiracies, like some of the big ones, like uh, that we uh, 
like uh like the Bilderberg group. Yeah. They are incredibly complex and convoluted, right? But I think the reason that some of these conspiracy theories, and this is where I think the biggest difference is, uh, some of these conspiracy theories, like the Bilderberg Group, are as as big and crazy as they uh, as they are, because other people have put all of this other history into it that's not there. You know, there's. There, there's all like all this t- like because look at alex jones look at the things that he saw when he went to the grove versus what ron saw when he or what uh john saw when he went to the grove they were at the same event but one of them looked at it as new world order the other looked at it as a bunch of frat boys do- doing their thing right but the one that ultimately ended up being the more popular uh, uh, observation to societies was Alex is Alex Jones. Yeah, it's that has all of this other stuff attached to it that has nothing to do with the actual conspiracy at the at the center of it. Whereas these conspiracies were real. Yeah, these are things that were actively try. People were actively trying to do, actively participating in. You know, not pretending it's one is one honest to god one feels like a larp and the other was uh actual war yeah and the other side of it is shit like this would be next to impossible to do in the modern day yeah you, the the effort that you would have to go into to plot to assassinate a, the leader of a nation is astronomical yeah. And I'm not saying it wasn't then. Obviously, it, it was, but you couldn't get a. You would you would talk to one person about this that you maybe had eighty percent faith in, and they're going to go tell somebody else, and that person's going to tell somebody else, and that person, and and in today's technology, or with today's technology, all of that instead of happening over the course of months, maybe even years, depending on the distance between them, it happened in forty five seconds. Yeah. Well, and. You also go into, I mean, again, that 80% faith thing. When you're talking about big things like this, like killing heads of state, if you're a a low-level agent who acts as an informant to someone else and they ask you for information and you kind of figure out what they're up to, that they're going to try to kill a head of state, you're now holding a massively valuable piece of information. I don't just mean valuable in terms of intelligence. I mean money. Oh yeah. Like and that is going to get a lot of people to go, you know, go hey, uh, I know who's trying to kill you. How about you pay me for that information? Well, yeah, exactly. And especially if you are poor to begin with and this is enough money, we're talking enough money to get you out of being poor for probably the rest of your life and your children's lives. Like yeah, I'm sorry, but not dying covered in my own shit sounds pretty good right about now. Mm-hmm. Depending on what the information was and who you managed to get that information directly to without having a bunch of go of go betweens, there's a lordship in this for oh, you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I the the most fascinating thing about this to me, and part of the reason why it made it so confusing, is every single person involved in this plot was working for three different people. Like, every spy that the Vatican placed in Mary's court, they were there working for Mary. 
but they were also working for the Pope. Except they weren't really working for the Pope. They were working for the head of the Holy Alliance. And within the Vatican itself, being loyal to the head of the Holy Alliance is not the same thing as being loyal to the Pope. Like, like Nick was kind of saying about part of a Pope's power is determined with how well he works with the Holy Alliance. The Holy Alliance seems to often treat the Pope as a temporary employee. Yeah. Well, it's a lot like how people have suggested the like CIA treats the president. Uh, why why would a temporary employee be need have need to know? Uh, which is a, a kind of an argument that is often made specifically around UFOs. Why presidents are not read into the UFO pro- programs? Yeah, it's yeah, a cop out. I I know it is, but that is the argument. Yeah, and yeah, and it's the same. It's kind of the same bullshit here. Of it's like. This is why a real-life conspiracy would be so hard to keep under wraps is because very few people are only loyal to one person and one organization because most people, deep down, are loyal to themselves first and foremost. And if it doesn't matter how many times you swear allegiance to the Pope or the Queen or whatever— if you realize you're in a situation where you're going to die if you don't betray one of those people, it's very likely and completely understandable for you to be like, eh, you, you know, it's, I took that vow a really long time ago and I don't super remember it very clearly. No, it's, yeah, no, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Like, and so, yeah, it's just, it, it, it kind of reaffirms for me that the earth can't possibly be flat because this many people would not continue lying about the earth being flat if they realized how many followers they could get on Twitch. If they were like, look, I have proof that the earth is flat. Look, I'm right here at the edge. See that? It's just a howling void. Not even turtles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. And again, you go back to, again, even like back back then, back before you have all the modern technology, look how seldom these conspiracies worked. Yeah. Like, and then that's just the truth, it, that most of these failed. Yeah. And, and that's only likely become more difficult as the years have gone on. Oh, yeah. I mean, as much as everybody hated Trump, we didn't ever hear about somebody actually trying to uh, assassinate him. Yeah. Because, but I'm sure people were considering it, maybe even tried. But it's just that hard now. Yeah, we've only lost two, in, in, in all of America's history, we've only lost two presidents to assassination. Yep. And one of those was prior to the creation of the Secret Service. Yep. And the other one may have been killed by the Secret Service by accident. Yep. That's, uh, that's the conspiracy theory that I believe is true. It makes an upsetting amount of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, well, it's like, eh. we're talking about Kennedy, if that wasn't clear. Yeah. It's... Whereas I am on the side of his head just did that. That's no. <laughs> <laughs> his head just did that. Um. So, are we ready for section three? I am. Part three. Based on how things shook out with Queen Liz the OG, you'd assume that the Catholic Church was bad at assassinating people, right? Eh, mixed bag, honestly. Some misses, some hits. And remember, we're likely working with incomplete data. Anyhow, Pope Paul V tried to fix that by founding a League of Assassins within the Church's control, as one does. You know, 
a totally normal, everyday solution. Here's the thing. If Pope Pius V, if Pope Pius V was like, I'm going to create a league of assassins that operate within the secret holy alliance and they will kill anyone upon my sole command, I'd be like, that tracks for you, buddy. You're a cackling cartoon supervillain from another planet. <laughs> but when one of these other fucks does it, I'm like, will you calm down? Show some respect for that fancy hat you fought so hard to win. <laughs> uh, anyhow, these assassins were a subdivision of the Holy Alliance, and their allegiance to, was to the Pope alone. Pope Paul V based the culture of this bloody brotherhood off of a very racist book that insisted that assassins, or Islamic holy killers, began as an isolated sect of fanatics who killed to preserve religious purity. Pope Paul found this an honorable thing. Quote, It was completely pardonable for a fervent Catholic to give his own life in the attempt to do away with a heretic. End quote. Paul V dreamed of a band of deadly devoted, unthinking except for what he bid them to think, unfearful of death, wanting only to serve. And perhaps serve they did when it came time for Henry IV of France to die. Henry had become king of France in 1589 and had quickly driven Spanish troops from the country. France had broken ties with the Vatican some time before, choosing crown over Christ. The Vatican allowed Henry IV to ascend with their support, or at least without their protest, because he swore to convert to Catholicism, a promise he kept, and take all of France with him. Nope. And that nope would have been bad enough, but the damn pesky flip-flopper decided to go ahead and fuck up everybody's year by gearing up for an attack on Spain. This was in 1610, and fellas, Europe was in no shape for another war between the superpowers. The Vatican tried to intervene, telling him to stop, <sighs> but Henry plowed ahead, ignoring the urgings of Rome. This was the final straw. First, he reneged on promises to convert France to Catholicism. Next, he planned to oppose the church's interests in the German war by backing the wrong party. Now he was trying to attack one of the Vatican's most powerful and fervent allies and one of their most useful tools. He had to go. On May 14, 1610, Henry said something odd to an ambassador and to his secretary of state. He proclaimed that he would die soon and that the stars had told him so. In an eerie turn of events, upon returning to his chambers, the king found a letter warning him not to go out that afternoon. He ignored it, and he and several courtiers left the palace in a carriage without the king's bodyguards. For reasons unknown, Henry ordered the coachman to head for a specific cemetery. Turning down a narrow street, the carriage was forced to slow due to foot traffic, and then it got stuck. A man had been following the carriage for some time, but none of the riders had noticed him until just then, as he rapidly approached the royal carriage, raising a long dagger. Through the window, he struck the king twice in the chest. The first blow was superficial, but the next did the trick. Henry died gasping the words, it's nothing. Outside the carriage, the assassin stood perfectly still, holding his dagger. He did not resist when three unidentified men appeared with drawn stores, calling death to the assassin. They attempted to slay the man, but were driven off by the royal guard. 
The Duke of Empernon, one of the king's companions, ordered the assassin captured and interrogated. But it seems the man was already familiar to the duke. The assassin was called Ravelik. He had once been sent by the Jesuit order to Empernon's household, where he was meant to be a bodyguard to the duke and a spy for the Holy See. Under interrogation, the man would only swear that no Catholic or Frenchman had aided him. In his pocket was found an eight-sided piece of paper. On each side was the name Jesus, and in the center was the phrase, prepared for the pain of torment in God's name. This was the symbol of a fringe Catholic mystic group called the Octagonist Circle or the Eight. They were a militia swearing blind obedience to the Pope. Many historians have linked the Eight to the Holy Alliance, but there is no proof, and the truth died with Ravelik. In Rome, the Pope held a mass, calling on the flock to mourn the good King Henry IV. As the faithful wept above, others wept below for different reasons. In the dank and shadowed catacombs in some secret room, a second mass was held in the honor in honor of the Catholic martyr Jean Francis Ravelac. And that's going to bring us to discussion question number three. All right. Do you believe that the Octagonists were a part of the Holy Alliance? And if they aren't, was the Pope still ultimately behind the death of King Henry? Spin your wild theories for me. I mean, I don't know how many wild theories I have here. I just think, yeah. And I have no evidence for this, but it tracks. Like, the Catholic Church doesn't admit to the ent- that the entity is a thing. The entity probably also has groups that they don't admit to yeah. because they do even darker shit than what they do. Yeah. Like, it absolutely would not in any way surprise me because a lot of the people that we meet that are involved in the entity, they don't seem very Catholic to me. No, they're spies that became priests because they wanted to work for the Holy Alliance. Yeah. So, like, yeah, I could see that being a thing. Absolutely. Also, I think that them calling themselves the Eight is actually kind of cool. Not going to lie. I like the Octagonist Circle a lot. They are, they are fascinating. They're a fascinating band of crazy people. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'll think if I have any other wild theories to go along with it, but I mean, I, that, that's pretty straightforward for me right there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm on the same, uh, the same wavelength. I mean, one thing that I kept trying to remember uh, when I was going through this book is it's very clear right from the start. When we say the entity or the holy alliance, um, we're, it's not really describing a monoculture there. It's not describing yeah. a singular monolithic entity. Like, yes, there it has a head, but at various points, it has multiple heads of different divisions who sometimes work against each other. Yeah. And then we have these outsider groups that are part of that alliance, but not like the Jesuits. Yeah, uh, the Jesuits. That's a good, that's a good point. Were often used as shock troops, mm-hmm. uh, but they were never fully a member of the Holy Alliance. But that doesn't mean that what they did wasn't in the furtherance of the Holy Alliance's goals. It does seem like the Holy Alliance recu- recruits a good portion of their members from the Jesuit order, yeah. and that, and, and you kind of see that because so many popes in the early sections of this book 
kept trying to get rid of the Jesuits, and at least part of that had to do with their close relationship to the Holy Alliance. Yeah, and so similarly, the Octagonists, I could see the same thing happening. Like, hey, we are a clandestine, uh, you know, church-led, I guess, let's just say intelligence service, for lack of a better term. And, oh, look over here, there is this group of religious, murderous religious zealots who are willing to die or kill in the name of their faith. Why? That's a useful tool. You know, Exa- it- exactly. Like, it, just because they weren't necessarily associated by a direct link, the entity, the Holy Alliance saw what they, were do- what they would be willing to do and went, I can use that. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think the Octagonists were just an, a, one of the long list of tools that the en- Holy Alliance has used uh to further its aims yeah and i I don't, I don't think that's very conspiratorial or out there for me that's just how organizations like this tend to operate i mean you the look u.s government fucking does this yeah, yeah. With, it's, with private uh with private security firms pri- pri- not only private security we do it with other countries governments proxy yeah. wars i oh, mean it's yeah. basically the same thing uh you're just co-opting another another's cause to serve your own ends. We do it when we fund rebels. We do it yep. when we fund insurgencies. We do it literally every single day as a country. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of, you know, uh, the thing our intelligence services seem to be paradoxically both really good at and really bad at at the same time because it often blows up in our face. That's what happens when you have your hand in too many pots. Mm-hmm. That should just teach you. One cookie jar, CIA, that's all you get. That's right. Pick your battles one at a time, okay? No, no, I'm just literally talking about a cookie jar. We're going to change the budgeting on their snacks. You know what? I support this. Look, we can only fight back so much before they shoot us in the back of the head. Snacks is the limit of what we can mess with. If we're limiting them to one cookie jar, is it also only one type of cookie, or is it going to be an assortment of cookies? I see. At first, I wanted to do just off-brand Fig Newtons, but then I mm. heard a, the click of a gun from the shadows behind me, and I quickly adjusted my opinion. Yeah. So assortment. Yeah. Assortment. Yeah. That's what I'm being told. That's what I think too. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. So I, I do think the Arctic. I, I think ultimately, regardless of who pulled the trigger, of course, the church was behind the death of King of King Henry. Yeah. Uh. It's almost like they had means, <laughs> yes. motive. They had means and motive, and many, many opportunities, and yeah, and motivation, immense motivation. They didn't like the guy. Yeah, I mean, he I, and again, you go back to all right. I am. You take a pope. You take a guy who already has gone up through the church, and now he's made pope, and he's told you are now infallible. You are now God's voice on the earth. Oh, by the way. Here is this horde of murderous psychopaths that are under your beck and call. Have a great time. Like that is <laughs> that is a recipe for making a supervillain right there. Yes. I would become a supervillain if that was handed to me. How could you not? I know. What you're just going to sit there looking at all those murderers and not use them? Yeah, right. <laughs> all right, Holy Alliance, let's start at the top of the list of girls who were mean to me in middle school. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it would get real petty real fast. But granted, here's the thing. I'm not sure I'd be ordering assassinations, but, like, I, don't, I think I'd, I'd try to have fun with it. Like, ah, uh, yes, yes, uh, drive-by pieing. Just <laughs> either that or, you know, just kneecap him. Just drive by with a baseball bat, swing for the knees. That's what's going to happen to Rory. Oh. 
Please, see, no. See, I'm not entirely convinced that the assassin was actually part of the Octagonus. I think he was part of the Holy Alliance, and I think they may have been trying to frame the Octagonus. Hell, maybe. I mean, that, that, that's certainly an option. Well, all right. Well, uh, they have this crazy holy order over here that everyone already thinks is crazy. And how do they identify themselves? An easily replicable piece of paper. Got it. Especially because um, one of the things that one of the things that stuck out to me about that is the French police did not discover that link between that symbol and the octagonus until like a few like they, they didn't discover the link to the eight until a few years after the assassination had happened and it seems like they kind of spent those years chasing down what the fuck does this piece of paper mean and they weren't pursuing any of their other leads that felt like and it's again especially with the fact that those three other men just kind of exploded out of the shadows and tried to execute him in the street and had to be chased off by the royal guard, like I, I think the I think the Vatican killed him, full stop. And I think they were trying to make it look like somebody else did it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, no, that that completely tracks. Um, and also, I'd say even if like even if on some strange. Uh, you know, some sort of strange series of events. The Vatican were not like directly in, in, implicated in in planning the assassination. It was still their fault. Like they were still involved at some point down the line. Uh, even if they, you know, again, you go back to uh, do you blame the murderer or do you blame the tool? At the, that at that point, the Octagonus would be the tool. Even if really all that happened was the Holy Alliance went, "Hey, it would be cool if that guy died," and then yeah. the Octagonus planned the whole thing. They're still ultimately a tool for the Holy Alliance. Yeah. Yeah. The seed was planted by the Holy Alliance in that scenario. Yeah, because when they're not, like, out killing people, they're spreading propaganda. That was also their main use their, their main use for long stretches of time throughout history was just, was just spreading propaganda to try and get lay people on their side in different political fights. And as we all know, if you plant the seed, you got to pay alimony. <laughs> yep <laughs> that was good <laughs> uh so is that is that bring us to the end of part one? Oh goodness it does <laughs> <laughs> so that is the end of entity part one we're not going to be doing our about the author because that's going to be coming next week next week next week oh yeah you're right is it next week wow Wow. I, I don't I don't know how this is going. I just I just work here. <laughs> this is a brand new format for all of us and we need to be supportive of each other as we learn. I do not. <laughs> yes, you do. I I didn't even realize that like we had uh that that we were that far into it already. That's crazy. Yeah, that was discussion question number 3. Well, all right. So then uh uh, do we have any? Uh, do do we have anything that we want to go over prior to just moving into housekeeping for the day? Well, I mean, really, just saying. Uh, so this is a a new format we're trying out. Uh, it's something that may come up in the future, but we'll discuss that probably closer to the live stream. Yeah. Uh, which is when? 
On the 17th of August. Yep. We're going to be doing another live stream, including uh, some cool giveaways, which mm-hmm. we're going to be uh, mm-hmm. teasing here soon. Yep. Uh, so if you're looking for a good time, come and join us then. As I said, we're going to be doing some giveaways and uh, going over the last year of books and deciding which ones are worth keeping on the shelf and which ones we should probably just drop in the donation bed at the public library. Which is probably what we will be doing with some of them. Uh, that or the sewer. Mr. Dubay. Or the a pyre, yeah. I, I w- want to tie Flatlantis to a rocket and send it into space and make it the Martians' problem. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. You know why? Because it's going to go out there, and about 800 years later, an actual E.T. is going to intercept that rocket, pick it up, and that's going to be their view of Earth culture. You know, that's a valid point, but also there's some like weird like irony or something in sending a book about flat Earth out into the sky so that they can see globe Earth. Yeah, that's a good point. That's that the yeah, that was it's 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 art. Yeah. That's why I'm doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I like it. Well, then I guess since we're not doing it about the author for this, we can just go right into housekeeping. 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 So if you liked what you heard and you want to stick around for the next one, you can like and subscribe on whatever podcasting platform it is that you are listening to us on. And if it is Apple or Spotify, you should leave us a review. Um five stars. Because it actually helps. Or or honestly, just any review at all. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that on social media that's currently called Twitter, but soon that might be changing, uh, at Noctivian Pod, and I am at Rory Wicks. I'm at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And then we have a a plethora of other social medias, of course. We have an Instagram, Noctivian underscore podcast. We have a Reddit account, Noctivian Podcast. And a Tumblr account, Noctivigant Podcast. But I think that's it. So lead us out of here, Jay. Good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there on those midnight roads. Follow the signposts. Don't anger the Holy Alliance. I mean, you could do that last one. <laughs> For your own safety, don't anger the Holy Alliance. Hey, hey, the church says they're not real, so we're safe. I was going to say, what are they going to do? Show up? They're not real. Isn't that the conspiracy? Please leave. <laughs> <laughs>
most notably being named Henry just kind of set you up for being brutally murdered by a bunch of priests. 